Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have the honor of being joined by Miroslav Wolf. Thank you for coming on the show, sir. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, where, uh, where are you uh, calling in from today? I'm in my office at uh, Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Nice, snowy New England day. How, how cold is it today? It's not terribly cold. It's like 40, but, uh, but it's snowed about uh, six, uh, eight inches or so. And, so, and, and very kind of heavy snow. So it was all in, uh, everything was clad in white. Yeah. How, how and my, my, my young daughter is um, uh, 15 months uh, old, 16 months old. And it was uh, the first opportunity to create a snowman for her. And she was totally mesmerized by, really? by the snowman. Oh, that's outstanding. Um, yeah, so it was cool. My, I have three daughters. Uh-huh. And the first time they saw snow, it was a huge deal. Now, we live in Texas, so they don't get to see snow very often. She saw snow, but she didn't quite see her own snowman. She had to have her own snowman. This was just the topic of conversation the whole day. Oh, that's outstanding. What, uh, where are you from originally? Originally from Croatia. Is, is the climate in Croatia similar, or is it a lot? Yeah, it's probably, probably a little bit warmer than, uh, than uh, in uh, Connecticut, uh, but uh, four seasons, uh, roughly similar, yeah. Okay, well, good for you. Good for you. Okay, I, I'm very excited to talk uh, about the new book. It's uh, For the Life of the World, and you co-wrote it. Uh, I don't know how to say the gentleman's last name. Crossman? Uh, Crossman. Okay. Crossman. Do you like the process of writing with other people? Uh, I haven't written very much, some. Uh, and, uh, yeah, no, it can be very very productive, very very useful, very helpful. We are, we're trying to actually to... Uh, to practice uh, a kind of a new way of doing theology, doing a bit more collaborative work than we would, uh, than theologians uh, otherwise have done. And this is now, I think, a second book or a third book that uh, was done in such a way. I have a previous book with another uh, co-author, but we form a kind of community of scholars here and uh, mutually share ideas and uh, uh, developed ideas uh, together, so it's it's really uh, it's really I- I- interesting. You know, I'm an old geezer in this in this crowd. They're all much younger than I am uh, in their in their 30s, late 30s or so, mid to late 30s. Uh, but it's very cool. What is the benefit of doing collaborative theology? You know, it's a theology has been um, um, so incredibly. Uh, what diversified scholarly research uh, is such that it's uh, uh, has multiplied in such a way that it's very hard to follow uh, the work in one particular subfield. Especially biblical scholars are always complaining if they say they're writing a commentary on Mark, they can never follow everything that's been written on Mark, uh, let alone everything else. And the goal, really, of work that we are doing here is kind of to cross, to to push against uh, the specialization uh, of theological disciplines. Not so much to think that it's uh, unimportant, but to emphasize that something 
that the kind of uh, overarching themes, kind of the unity of theological thought uh, and perspective is really essential for theology to function as it is supposed to uh, function. In that sense, I think our collaborative work is an expression of this sense that we need each other and that various theological subdisciplines actually can work together to create this um, unified perspective. That's good. That's good. I, I definitely like that. And so my study in life is I'm a pastor uh, at a church in Texas. And so, and, and I obviously have three kids. And so the the, um, the time that's been allotted to me to read and to study does not give me the opportunity to read every different theological treaty that's come out and every new piece of work. And so for having people like yourself to be able to synthesize and to bring some of those things together is a huge benefit for someone like me. So I, I definitely greatly appreciate it. Well, and in some sense, it's also a function of you as a minister. When you uh, when you stand to preach, you, you, you can preach simply from the particular vantage point uh, that you find at the moment uh, interesting or that that uh, has yep. been subject of your reading you have to take the faith as a whole and take a slice of it but in the light of the whole pro- uh, announce the gospel uh, proclaim um, uh, in whatever way is appropriate or even exegete the scripture yep and and also you have to exegete the room and the audience yeah. and and yeah. what everyone else is experiencing and so that whole collaborative work uh, I, I think I think we're all moving in a better direction when we're trying to collaborate and include other people's voices and their perspectives. And, and so I appreciate that that was behind this, the new book, which is entitled For the Life of the World. And there's so much I want to get to, but I feel like one of the foundational points that you make in the book is that Christian theology prepares people to see our home as God's home. Yeah, that's what I think is the purpose of theology. I think it's tied to the way in which uh, we read, uh, Matt and I, but others also here at the center, in which we read what's the goal of God in creating uh, humanity. And I think it's a very simple answer to it, and that is to create a world as a home which is ours and is ours as a home because it is God's home. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think people see their home as being disconnected from God's home, as if God resides somewhere else and where we are right now, like we're separate? Or what do you think causes people to struggle to connect those two? Well, I, uh, I think people people do see uh, sometimes their their the world as a kind of secular reality, uh, mm-hmm. and there is Christian expectation sometimes among, uh, in some uh, among some Christians that uh, the God's goal with humanity is to take us away from this uh, this earth mm-hmm. uh, in the union uh, to have union with God, but also even um, y- you know sometimes. Uh, those who, those of us who don't quite see it this way, and to see the world more as a um, as a site in which into which God comes, uh, there's a kind of a alienation that can happen because the world actually isn't often God's home. Um, the world is a kind of alien space. It's a world uh, a world which doesn't quite recognize God as uh, as God, or which arranges the world in such a way that uh, it becomes an inhospitable place for God and for other people. So I think the sense of um, being stranger is is very very significant. And by the way, I think one of the one of the things that uh, we uh, keep in mind also is that in important strands of modernity, 
there is a critique of alienation of human beings from the world and in quite secular terms, so that the modern man doesn't find himself at home in the world. Uh, that's a line that you see in uh, in Marx. That's a line that you see in Freud. Uh, in many some ways, that's a line that you see in Nietzsche. Uh, you can see it everywhere in the modern, uh, modern Heidegger as well. You can see it in modern thought, and that too we keep in mind as we think about world as God's home and human home. And so, so the good news, obviously, kingdom is is a big part of the work you do in the book. Kingdom is this good news that y- you aren't disconnected; that there is a, a connection between your home and God's home, right? Yeah, yeah. And then kingdom, a kingdom uh, is is a uh, uh, is this one of these relational uh, terms? Uh, it's it's um, it's uh, uh, it's a space, and it, it's uh, also uh kind of a, a relationship to to a king so uh but you can't have a king who doesn't have any space that over which a realm over which he, he or she or queen over which he rules but you can have also the realm without having the the kings so it defines this mutual inseparable relationship between god and the world when you think about a world as a kingdom of god or the same is true of home as well yeah yeah Okay, so one of the, the things you do early in the book is, uh, in some ways, you tap back into some of the content that you've done in, in previous works where uh, you want to talk about what the good life is and what is the good life. Everyone has to figure out what the good life is. And previously, it seemed like this was a question of religion versus secularism. Like, what is a good life? And it, it used to be either religion versus secularism. Now it seems like there are a bunch of different vying options for what the good life is. Is yeah, yeah. So, and there there are m- multiple options, not just in uh, in, in kind of if you if you divide the the uh, the, the the realms into secular and uh, mm-hmm. and religious uh, in religious domain, there are multiple uh, options. Various uh, religions stand for for those various options, but also in the in in a secular realm, there are also alternatives. Uh, I mentioned Marx, and I mentioned Nietzsche, and I mentioned Freud. Those are alternative visions of the good life that are being represented there so we have a we have a plural space uh, rather than simply division between secular and um, and uh, and religious you know and i think that's related to the idea that though secularization in the west was uh, uh, secularization in the west was a falling away from uh, christian faith so it's a Christian secularization in some ways, or Judeo-Christian secularization, so that uh, atheists of old uh, were Christian atheists, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. right? Uh, and uh, in that sense, you could divide secular and religious, because the religious was Christian, and secular was kind of secularly Christian, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Now, we're in a very different situation. Yeah, you, you footnote a... Uh Oh, uh, what is the gentleman's name? Uh, Dwork- Dworkin, Ronald Dworkin, who yeah. developed a religious form of atheism, which I w- yeah, w- which talked about gratitude, sacredness of the human life, and beauty. And I'm going, I, as as a pastor, I talk about those three things quite often. So yeah, it, it's very analogous to even a, a quote unquote like Christian religious view of the world. Yeah, and it'll, it'll con- uh, have similar elements, right? And then uh, you may want to parse out and think, oh, are those, uh, do we mean exactly the same thing by gratitude? Uh, yeah. uh, but nonetheless, uh, there's something similar, and it's important to note both the similarities and the differences. 
Agreed, agreed. So there's this smorgasbord of options of what, what the good life is. And, and one of the things that y- you describe about this age is that there's, uh, there's a low view of the sage. And you use a, the metaphor of, uh, of a waiter who comes out, you order the food, and you expect the waiter to tell every person who ordered whatever they ordered, oh, that's a great choice, oh, that's a great choice. Yeah. And we don't have the place for a sage as much in our culture now as people did in the past. How does that impact our ability to parse out and to have a vision for what the good life is? Well, you know, it's interesting you use the word smorgasbord, and uh, smorgasbord uh, uh, comes even with the absence of the waiter, right? <laughs> Where you go yeah, yeah. pick up whatever, whatever, whatever is there, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But I think uh, I think what what both the smorgasbord restaurant and the contemporary waiter uh, restaurant have in common is that uh, basically it's a matter of uh, pure taste and your taste uh, alone as to what you should uh, what you should. Take. Now, the old uh, approach to, um, to to not just worldview, but to visions of the good life was not that the taste was a uh, deciding factor, but rather that there's a question about truth, about rightness, about goodness, um, uh, about beauty, which is to say that we ought to be thinking of the pluralism in which we find ourselves as being about uh, truth seeking, because all these options that are offered uh, on the offer, um, they, they are uh, on the offer as claimants to truth. They claim to be true. And so I think we need to then develop ways in which we can engage in a truth seeking conversation uh, mm-hmm. among these different uh, versions. Yeah, I, I think that's a great observation of taste versus truth. Uh, later in, in that same section, you talk about how uh, in some some way we've become like the, the dog chasing the tail where mm-hmm. the thing that we've become most fascinated with is like our comforts. And it, another metaphor you use is of a painter whose highest goal is like just to get the right tools. And we focus on the means for life instead of the end. And it's been just about the, the taste of what we want instead of what is actually true and what life is supposed to be about. Yeah, yeah, we have forgotten to think about what our goals, what the ends of our lives are, and we have made often the means to life, such as money or such as power, such as fame. They're all empty goods, right? Uh, money is probably the most um, yeah. significant of the empty goods. It's, it has zero value as money. It has a yep. value as means towards something, and so we make then the goal of our life acquisition of means rather than thinking about the proper ends of human goals of human life. What is this all for? And then we kind of stutter and are unable to think about it. And I think that uh, Christian faith uh, and other traditions as well, but my concern in uh, in the book was primarily the Christian faith. It's about uh, ends, about goals of our lives. Um, One of the critiques you make is that uh, a Many Christian faiths, or many in the Christian faith, have primarily employed Christianity as a set of skills or resources uh, to manage life instead of being a question about the ends. How do we not reduce Christianity to being just about the means, uh, but instead see this as like a, a truth claim that really should validate the direction of who we are and where we go? Well, so my my question would be: What do you see Christ? Who does one see Christ to be? Is Christ the healer? Simply, is Christ the Redeemer? Is Christ whenever something breaks down in your life? 
whether that's the sense of guilt uh, because you feel that you've done something wrong or you bumped yourself as you were walking through life and somehow needs uh, needs reconstitution and repair, uh, is Christ a repairman? Uh, is the Christ uh, only the one who blesses? Uh, is Christ medicine? Is Christ performance-enhancing drug? Or does Christ define the form of life that mm-hmm. we ought to live? And I think Christ is both, I would say. Both mm-hmm. uh, uh, the one who set us aright, but who set us aright, not in order just to continue where we are headed in any case, uh, but to direct us also in the direction which we ought to pursue. And I think the main thing that Christ does for us is in unity with Christ by the power of the Spirit, we become Christ's <laughs> to others. Mm. Right? That's a, that's a great quote uh, from Martin Luther, which I love. It's one of the best culmination of one of his major texts, which is on the freedom of the Christian. And uh, But that means that your life becomes kind of Christ's life. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Suddenly, you're twisted and turned in the direction in which Christ is headed rather than in the direction you've chosen as you go about uh, pursuing what you find uh, is most suitable to your uh, interests and tastes. Uh, one, of, yeah, well, one of the things that I seem to experience as a pastor, and maybe just more than that as a person, is it's easier for me to let Christ be just a little part that I add to my already established life. And like you take care of, you know, my guilt or take care of my shame or my concern about what happens after death. Instead of saying, Jesus, let you be Lord. You're the king. I'm in your kingdom. I'm I'm your subject. I'll do what you want. Um, But I'd rather just say, you take care of these little parts of my life that I feel uncomfortable with that I think you can manage for me. Yeah, yeah, no, we do that in personal lives. We do that often in uh, in a political life, right? So, so then Christian faith functions as a political religion. A political religion is the one that aligns itself with with a, a general tenor of, of of the society and serves just to help uh, help out a little bit, keep the society together and keep it moving in the direction in which it's uh, it, it, in which it wants to go, rather than thinking of uh, political realm as a domain in which certain goals need to be set, and those goals are set also by Christ the the King or Christ the homeowner of the world. Uh, as a whole Christ the homeowner of the world I, I like that yeah I've, yeah I've never used that metaphor before but I think uh, I think there's something to that so we when we let Christianity not just be the taste of what we want but it becomes the truth that defines us uh, it's not just something we add on it's not just a skill set to get to where we already want to go but it really is the ends mm-hmm. it, it changes so we start with the good life what is the good life where we're going now you make a turn in the book in which you talk about how the academy and the church now you say in the book that um uh this book is in a lot of ways directed towards towards the academy but i think you also have a lot of stuff about the church and one of the things that you notice is that um there is a tension between the academy and the church now, as a pastor, I definitely see this. Uh, I see there's a tension. As someone who went to seminary, um, who, who, who went and got an MDiv, I, like, I see the difference of that world and the world that I reside in right now. As someone in, in your perspective, from your seat, how, how do you see the church's relationship with the academy now? Well, <clears throat> um, 
I'm not surprised that, that there would be difference. Uh, obviously, church, a seminary is not a church, and church is not a, not a seminary. So there, there will be differences. But the question is, is there, is there an unbridgeable split there? And often the people experience it as an unbridgeable divide uh, between the two. And I think I can express it maybe in a way um, uh, by, by reflecting on the relationship between uh, academic theologians of the type that teach uh, in seminaries and ordinary theologians, which every, not just pastor, but every uh, Christian Christian is. And I personally think that the two are intimately related. They're both doing actually the same thing. Uh, Academic theology, just like lay theology, let's call it lay theology, right? So it's, uh, or pastors uh, theology, but both academic pastors and lay theology. Yep. I think all three of these uh, theologies are really variations of the same. They are a faith which is practiced thinking about those practices, about Christian life and living in, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the world uh, and so I would want to say, I want to return um, theology to make it much closer to the practices of Christian uh, living, both personal and also public Christian living, and therefore closer to the to the pulpit, so that uh, so that. Uh, uh, this ends up being not just some kind of weird specialty uh, to which uh, lay people cannot relate, but actually that I can then show that even when it's highly specialized, that actually has important bearing on the very shape of our living and our discipleship in the world. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think uh, conversations should go or could go that would help uh, laity to understand the connection of like technical theology and how that can be uh, accessible to them because uh, from my experience I've uh, you know I've given some you know a Tom Wright book to someone who uh, has a very educated person in their own field but they they open up a Tom Wright book and go I, I don't even know where to start with this I don't, I don't even know how to how to approach this yeah, and I, I think some of it is a matter of uh, of technical vocabulary. Um, um, some of it is, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to work yourself, especially if you gave him one of the uh, of this person one of the big tomes uh, of yeah. right. So <laughs> it becomes dif- difficult, right? Um, um, so I, I think some of it is uh, bridging the vocabularies and kind of catching up uh, people. So more more of a uh, technical side of uh, of things, but I think it's um, it's also theology needs to be written uh, in the ways that ties to the major issues that confront um, ordinary people. Whether that's uh, and that begins with the birth uh, and ends with death and everything that happens uh, in between. And my sense would be that if we took seriously, theologian to, theologians took seriously those uh, aspects ordinary, of ordinary life, that a lot of uh, ordinary people would be re- really interested uh, mm-hmm. in that. There's a line uh, in the book that says, many vibrant and growing churches, on the other hand, don't see themselves as needing academically trained ministers. There's another uh, observation in the book that many of the declining churches are the churches that require a seminary education. 
and, and so one of the things I've gotten to do in the podcast is talk to people who are uh, not sem- seminary trained pastors, people who you know went to Bible college uh, or just did on the job training and have created a, a large following. People really look up to them, they connect to them. Oh. And uh, I had one person who's uh, very well known uh, pastor, but when I said even the phrase master, a uh, masters of divinity, he had never heard it before. And he's a pastor of a church of thousands and thousands of people. And I'm going, well, there's clearly something that that's connecting with people that the academy can learn from you sure. and, and vice versa. But I don't know how to create dialogue or, or, or environments where, where these two people from seemingly disparate worlds can interact and, and, and bring their things together. Mm. You know, sometimes sometimes I have found that, that um, and teaching also to um, to students who come from such such backgrounds. I uh, the, and and really often it depends on from situation to situation. But I found uh, that a lot of lay people will read sermons uh, of somebody like Augustine uh, from fifteen hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And will speak to them more than if they uh, read uh, some treatise by a contemporary uh, theologian. And I, I think one has to one has to uh, one has to find connecting points. And and often in these in these areas, for, for instance, uh, commentaries on the Bible, either by Luther or by Calvin, often. I find people uh, uh, and ministers of this of this sort that you described. They just the, their eyes go uh, go wide, and they think, "Oh, this is really cool. I've never known anything like that existed." And that may be then a way in which they can enter into the space uh, and reflection. And obviously, once you start reflecting, then the complexity of issues uh, um, comes before you, and you need to make significant decisions. Disagreements start there that are disagreements about the mode of life. Right, uh, big disagreement. For instance, that's part of of the of the book um, that we are discussing. Is is the end of God with the world? Is world the end of God with the world, or is God the end of God with the world? Go mm-hmm. right. That's a huge disagreement that goes through the edifice of the entirety of of theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I am sure that if I sat together with a uh, with, with a minister of the sort uh, that you were describing, uh, they would be really interested in trying to figure out that. Yeah, yeah. I, I would assume. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would assume a lot of the the weight for connecting the three categories you mentioned earlier: the academy. Uh, pastor and then laity. I feel like in a lot of ways, the pastor job is to find a way to connect the laity to the academy and the academy to the laity, because they're the ones who've, many of them have occupied uh, some of their life in the academy, and now they reside day to day in in the church, but but they have a foot theor- theoretically in both worlds. And I think it's, it's our job to be able to connect yeah. uh, the academy and the laity together. And yeah. I don't feel like it's really on either other party to like carry all the weight themselves. Sure, I think I, I think that's that's quite right. I think also the transformation and openness need to be there on on both on both sides. Yeah. Um, you, uh, I've met people, lay people and ministers who are very close to to theology, and uh, it doesn't help that I've met also academics who think oh, it doesn't make uh, any sense for me to I, to engage uh, with ministers that doesn't, uh, somehow doesn't bear <laughs> anything that I do. And I think, well, um, yeah, that's the problem. I, I want that yeah. conversation open, right? And mutual learning would be really very important. 
Yeah, and, and that goes back to the very beginning of the conversation, the collaboration. The, the yeah. importance of collaboration is, that, <laughs> yeah. is that, that we all can gain something from each other. And so I, I appreciate that. In the, in the book, there is a, a critique of the, the academic world that um, creates an environment in which uh, academicians can really just stay in their silo and co- talk to each other because if they want to get tenure, they've got to be uh, published and they're going to get published in an academic publication. And so they just stay there. And so... Uh, to, to point fingers and say it's all in the academy or on the laity or all in the pastors. Like, I, I think we all have our part in moving forward from that. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Okay, so um, another section of the book. Let me give you another quote. Uh, Theology is trivialized when it is reduced to simply rehearsing and doggedly defending past articulations of the faith, as if the same things need to be said at every time and in every place. Uh, some people... In, we, we like hearing the same things over and over again, and some people feel very comfortable having the exact same ideas reformulated week in and week out. It's soothing to them. It's comforting to them. How do we have, I guess, the, the confidence, the, the willingness to hear new articulations of the faith? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't think novelty is, uh, uh, for the sake of novelty, is is really really important. I think what I was trying to, what we were trying to say in, in this in this uh, with this uh, quote uh, that, that that you read is that uh, it's important to say the same things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to point to the same. Actually, more importantly, it's important to point to the same person. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ is always remains always the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't do that by simply saying the same thing over over and over again, yeah. um, because our lives uh, often change, and the meaning of Christ for us uh, of that very same Christ changes for us. I'm, I'm really fond of um, what one actually Muslim um, uh, mystic uh, said. If you read the Bible, a passage of the Bible, he was mentioning Quran, but I, I apply to the Bible. If you read the Bible passage twice, and it means exactly the same thing, you haven't read it well. Mm. Uh, and the reason for that That's is good. that uh, I mean, I, I, this is my experience. I mean, I've been reading the Bible since I was nine, eight years old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know how many times have I gone through uh, through parables, for instance. I'm now in the Bible in a in a home study uh, group with a group of folks. We are reading. It's a pizza and parables, or parables <laughs> and pizza, right? And uh, I don't know how many times I've read and read books on on those parables. Uh, every time I go to that group. I read and something fresh pops out. I'm reading it and it. I'm using different words to say what's in the parable and parable is the same, right? Yeah. And I think that's the kind of thing that we're trying, uh, we're trying to express there, that we in new situations will find new treasures to be taken out, uh, expressed in a different way. And that's how the word of God lives and that's how we live engaged with the word of God. Yeah, th- there's a there's an old parable about a rabbi walking with uh, three of his students, and uh, first one says, "Oh, you all must be upset because the rabbi was directly talking to me." And the second one says, "Oh, you all must be upset the rabbi is directly." And the third one says the exact same thing because they all heard a yeah. fresh word just for them. And I and, and I love your articulation of the parables is that you can you can for someone like me, I can preach the same parable five weeks in a row and say sure. five different things because there there's always new life to it. Uh, but some sometimes we just want to go. Well, this is what I know. I, I know I know it, and I don't need to experience anything new. And there's a sense that I want to have 
in some ways, I want to be sovereign over this text and have it figured out. And so it's, it's in my possession now that I own it. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that is a danger, right? Then become really comfortable and uh, we think we, we, we master a text and then seek and have comfort in this stability of, uh, uh, but it, the text stops speaking to us. It's like a, like a crutch to us rather yeah. than like a challenge that we, that we have. Rather than the movement of the self into God, it becomes a, a way of staying in the same place. <laughs> Did this naturally come to you, or did you have to fight off the temptation to let it be a crutch? Or have you always had this uh, willingness to explore and, and the idea to, to trust that God continues to speak through, through the parables that you're enjoying with pizza every Thursday night or whenever you get together? Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I, was, uh, I, uh, I, tend to be, I tend to be open uh, more, and uh, I think it may be in different settings um, Sometimes I, there are certain texts that, are, that feel to me like they've become crutches. Uh, and sometimes there are others which I think, oh, I, I think I'm just spinning into something new here. But uh, uh, actually, I just need to return back back yeah. to the old. So I see dangers in both sides. And I think it's really a, a, a kind of uh, we need wisdom and the guidance uh, for recognition of what is significant, what is significant in our lives, and what is significant in the text, and how the two uh, uh, connect with one another. What What do you think helps foster openness towards the text? Continue to speaking to us. Uh, I, I think the kind of trust in God uh, and, uh, and a kind of sense that um, that I don't need to trust my having figured God but that I can trust God and therefore have a bit more um, flexibility in terms of what I have figured. Now, I'll give you, give you an example where it becomes a, a very difficult but also, also uh, essential. In Romans uh, 8, uh, this whole chapter is really about suffering, right? Especially starting with like uh, verse 17, 18, uh, 19 there with suffering of creation. It goes all the way to suffering uh, of Christians. And in the middle of it, uh, it says, we don't know what to pray. And you think, well, well wait, so wait a second. If I know when I'm suffering, if, uh, if I don't know when I'm suffering what to pray for, when do I know? It seems to me so obvious what I should pray for. Mm-hmm. And then I can impose in a situation of suffering my expectations upon the situation and have God uh, seek to uh, insist on God meeting that expectation. And yet Apostle Paul says we don't know how to pray. The Spirit prays with us so, so that a prayer is a prayer in, into the darkness. And this mm-hmm. ability to step in the darkness is uh, absolutely essential, right? And, and then clarity and the light comes after I've been in the darkness, right? And so um, that's what faith is. Faith not in uh, seeing things, but faith in unseen. I'm 110% going to just copy that word for word and use that in a sermon. So thank you. That is, that's, I love the idea, like it's stepping into the darkness, that, that you don't know, it's, it's unknowing and... It's so much easier to just trust in what you do know and what you hold on to. And this is actually, I think, a line of yours that I ripped off in, in a book, uh, speaking of things that I've stolen from you. Um, but the greatest temptation, and you, do, you reference this in the book again, that one of the greatest temptations is to think that we live by bread alone, mm-hmm. is that what is in front of us is all that we need. 
And faith says it's not just that. It's not just by sight, but it's by, by yeah. faith. And there's always this temptation just to pull us back to what I see and what I have. And faith is continually going, no, 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 there's more, there's deeper. Yeah. Okay, I, I, anyway, I just started preaching at you. That was really good stuff. I, I, I like that. I was good. Um, Preach it, brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, one of the things that you call us to do is to uh, align our lives with the basic vision of life, uh, of the life of those who sh- shape that you were, oh, hold on, I messed that up. Uh, we align our lives with the basic vision of what the good life is. Like, this is where we're going. Um, as we're trying to figure out, okay, what am I aligning my life to? What is my definition of the good life? And then how do I align myself to that? Um, what does it look like then to align yourself to your vision of the good life? Um, so, so the vision of the good life does kind of two things for you. Uh, mm-hmm. Two most fundamental things for you. It tells you what you should ultimately trust. And it tells you what you should ultimately love. Mm-hmm. It tells you how you should align all your different little trusts <laughs> and how you should align all your different little uh, loves. And uh, that's, I think, what it means to strive to live into a vision of, of the good life. It means to uh, examine what is it that I trust and how is it related to what I ultimately trust to examine what it, what it means what are so many things that I love and how, the, how are these things related to what I ultimately uh, ought to love right I ought to love these things but in these things uh, they're framed uh, uh, for me by something that I am trying to uh, uh, to achieve, and so to me that's what it means. Concretely, also it means um, following Christ. Concretely, maybe it means for me uh, reminding myself of uh, of stories of my parents, living into my saints, right? uh, because we all need more concrete examples that are closer to us than simply example of uh, of Jesus Christ uh, and then I reach for people that I have admired to have lived uh, in light of the gospel and I say well that's what I how I need to kind of orient my life because that, that's the direction of my life uh, to my life that I need to give what are you what what do you have in mind when you're thinking of the the things that people trust other than their like the the supreme thing they trust like the things um, that people trust the little things so I trust money, so I trust education, so I trust uh, kind of my, my, my cool uh, and kind of how I dress uh, so that when I show up, people will respond in a certain way to me i I mean uh, my entire life is one um, one large multifaceted form of trust, right? That I, what I rely on. And then obviously that's related to what I love. I generally love that which I can trust <laughs> that would carry me through, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so examining, say, how does um, my appearance, for instance, um, how, how does it, what, what role does it play for me in terms of uh, do I trust that? Uh, what happens? What would happen if something happened with the way in which I look? What would happen if I couldn't wear what I'm supposed to be uh, wearing, or, or whatever? It, you know, and so you can go down the line, and then obviously, if you start trusting, uh, say your performance, whatever form of performance, then you compare yourself with others. That's a competitive good. 
if somebody is performing better than than you are, then you suddenly, uh, you know, your your self image goes down. If you perform better, your self image goes up, right? Yeah. Somebody builds to next to you. Uh, you have a you have a nice little house that you love, and somebody builds a man mansion next to you, and you say, "What? I have only a house." <laughs> it's yeah. a competitive, comparative good, right? And so our loves and our trust we need to kind of discern them what truly uh, matters and I, I think for the health of our lives spiritual lives that that's really one of the most important things to do how would you direct someone to move away from those small things that you probably shouldn't put your trust in the um, the looks the the comparison the success into a more substantial trust um that's a very good question, but that's beyond my pay grade. That's your job. <laughs> <laughs> You're a pastor. I'm a theologian. I think that stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, this is where collaboration becomes a nuisance. Because yeah. I, yeah, I go I to you for all my answers, and now you're putting it back on me, which is... Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I think it's, uh, it's right. And, and in many concrete situations, uh, I mean, you, you need to kind of marry... Um, um, theological learning, spiritual wisdom... A knowledge of people in the concrete situation. You mentioned that earlier in, in conversation. Skills to deal with people, emotional intelligence and uh, a bit of psychology there too, a bit of sociology. So all of this comes together to bring, to make possible good advice in one particular instance, right? And then the next person comes into your office and advice is going to be a little bit different because that person is different, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. Well, I had, um, so in the book you referenced Christian Wyman's, uh, what was his phrase, uh, the accidental theologian? Accidental theologians, yeah. So the person was like, this person is really shaping how the world understands God and, and has helping us picture who God is. Um, but you don't really like, you're not counting the scientists as a theologian in a traditional definition, but they're accidental theologians. So there's a... Um, a, a drummer friend of mine who's an accidental theologian and mm. he, he's a drummer in a rock band and he he said to me one time he goes you know the reason we go to church isn't to learn something new as much as it is to remind us of what we already believe mm-hmm. and, and, and sometimes the reason you have these practices of of, of congregate of corporate worship is yeah. to remind you what your ultimate trust is and to remind yeah. you of ultimately what your definition of the good life is it's this life it's based on this one trust of Right. Of a person, right, right. No, I, I think I think that's that's exactly right, and that's why that, that's why you know the the liturgical traditions can be very helpful. You know, I'm uh, my father was a Pentecostal minister, my dad was a Baptist minister. I worship in an Episcopal church, and mm-hmm. partly part of the reason is that uh, it, it, in the liturgy you you get these uh, reminders. Yeah. of the entirety of the story of the gospel because even even our vision of the good life right it's part this this is understandable and you can be motivated to follow it only if you have a kind of story of the world in your mind right yeah. a story of what god is doing in the world what god is doing in the church a story of that starts from creation and ends with eschatology that all goes into motivating and sustaining a, a vision of the good life. Yeah. And wow. that's repeated very often, yeah? Same thing said slightly differently, and, uh, mm-hmm. but they're the same. It's, it's the same thing, but there's fresh interpretations. There's fresh experiences with that same thing. And, right. and, right. and in some ways, like, that's the, the, uh, 
the power of the Spirit, that you can hear the same thing and it still comes alive yep. to you every time you hear it. So yep. Uh, yep. this has been an absolute honor. I really appreciate the time. Uh, the new book is entitled For the Life of the World and it's available. It's been available for a little while now, so people should go get it. Uh, but sir, thank you so much for giving me the time. Pleasure to be with you. Keep yes, up sir. the good work. Yes, sir. You too. Yep. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.